Senator Malcolm Roberts, and this is Our Nation Today. I'm sure many are wondering just how much longer we can continue to survive economically and emotionally in this never-ending, unpredictable environment of capricious lockdowns. Human beings need to be able to plan for the future and have predictability about their world being okay. At the moment, many of us are not okay, and our border communities are in a dark tunnel of turmoil that seems to have no end in sight. The health of our economy is not okay. Each time another lockdown demands we close our businesses, our economy gets weaker. Small business is dying at the hands of the Prime Minister and our Premiers because their narrow focus excludes our economic security and surety for the future. Federal COVID financial packages finished up a few months ago. So in some quarters, we are yet to feel the real economic pain. There have been many businesses whose arrangements are put in place that have created a mountain of IOUs and that avalanche is yet to hit us, such as property leasing payments put on hold. Our CBDs are still too empty and the forced lease signs are all around town. Instead, our focus has to be on getting Australia, particularly small business, back to work. Now, joining us today is an outstanding economist named Gene Tunney. Above all, he's a practical economist whose business is adept economics. He's worked in the Federal Treasury and has diverse experience. Now, Gene knows that practical economists don't just deal in theory. It's true that Gene, the real-world economists, deal with the impact of what happens in the economy and on people's lives, and they anticipate behaviours that economic decisions and policies drive. Welcome, Gene. Hello, Malcolm. Great to be with you. And am I right in saying that uh, a real-world economist actually anticipates the impact of policies and decisions on human behaviours, what behaviours will be driven? I'd like to think so. I mean, we do try to uh, forecast what will happen in response to particular policies. That's, uh, that's often very difficult and particularly in the last 18 months or so, it's just been a bit of a roller coaster, and there, there's so much going on with the lockdowns and then all of the, the Commonwealth support we saw last year, which meant that we did have quite a rapid recovery when we opened up again. And also the Reserve Bank with the ultra-loose monetary policy and which is you know, helping drive up health, house prices. I mean, it's a, an extraordinary time to try and forecast what's happening out there, Malcolm. Okay, before we go into that, uh, so we've, we understand that economics, you've confirmed that economics is about people's behaviours and what behaviours will be driven or likely to be driven. Uh, could you tell us a bit about what your business does? Okay, so at Adept Economics, we help clients and it could be businesses that are trying to expand and they want a feasibility study done of an investment project for example it could be a council which and also agricultural groups so one of the recent projects i worked on was up in bundaberg i know this is an issue you're familiar with malcolm the paradise dam oh yeah i did a project for Bundaberg Regional Council and the grower groups there, so the, the cane growers and the, the macadamia growers, the fruit and veg growers, looking at, well, what's the economic benefit from Paradise Dam? Because there's a, currently the state government is investigating, well, do we repair the dam? They didn't, build the de- they didn't build it properly in the first place, it seems. And so they've lowered it as an emergency measure. And now they're investigating whether to repair it. And obviously people in the region want it repaired because there's such a great economic benefit from it so around well we estimated around two and a half billion dollars 
over the next few decades of benefits. How much again? Two and a half billion. So that's... Gee. Yeah, so it's a big deal because what we're... What you're seeing up there now... So, I mean, Cain's always been an important industry up there. Now they're getting into tree crops as well. So avocados and macadamias, and they're very, you know, highly valuable, but you need a very reliable water supply because you need to water them for years. You need to keep them alive for years so that they get to the the point where they're producing uh, the nuts and the the fruit. So government decisions are affecting the shape of a community, the health of a community, the economic health of a community, but also the shape of it. So what's, what's your background? Can you tell – I know you uh, said you worked in Federal Treasury. Where else have you worked and what have you done? Oh, well, essentially uh, I spent a bit of time at uni and did some teaching there and then went to work for the state government. I've worked in the industrial relations and employment and training departments here in Queensland and, and then I went to Federal Treasury to get experience there and then I left that around, uh, yeah, 2009 – and came back to Queensland and worked in a consultancy firm, Marston Jacob, and then uh, seven years ago I set up on my own because I, I, I just found I could, you know, I, I find it enjoyable to work by myself and also try and grow a business. And how are you doing growing that business? Because I found it enjoyable to work by myself as well and also have a, a variety of clients to work with. So there's a lot of variety which, which happens to tick my button. There's definitely a lot of variety. Uh, it's been going okay. I mean, I'm obviously concerned about COVID and the the current state of the economy and what that could mean. Uh, so, I mean, we're really in uncharted waters here at the moment. Uh, I mean, eventually we will we will recover. We'll get through this current period of insanity and economic carnage, but. Uh, it's going to be a difficult few months, I think, and we just hope it, the pain doesn't extend longer than that. Okay, so you've worked with small business. You are, in, you are a small business. You have worked with the Treasury, which oversaw federal policies guiding a whole economy. So from your analysis and listening to small business, what does it actually cost a small business every lockdown? Well, it depends on the type of business, Malcolm, so... If you're a restaurant or a cafe that is directly impacted, it's going to be a much bigger impact or an events business, particularly if you have to throw out stock, for example, or if you you lose lucrative bookings. CCIQ, so the Chamber of Commerce and Industry Queensland, they estimated that for, I think it was the March lockdown, three days, that could cost businesses tens of thousands of dollars. The, the range they gave, it was a bit of an odd range. It was $15,000 to $65,000 for a business. That was their estimate of the three-day lockdown. So I'm not sure exactly how they calculated it, but I think for some businesses that sounds fair enough if you have to throw out stock or if you have to, I mean, you're not running events that would have helped you earn the money you need to, uh, to keep the business viable and to keep people employed. So, I mean, we've had you know, major events cancelled. People have cancelled weddings. Now, they'll get married eventually, I suppose, but there, there will be a lot of activity that, that, uh, that, that vanishes, really, and so you lose that, that economic opportunity. Well, I, I know I came back from uh, Canberra and sitting in Parliament one, one week a couple of months ago, 
and Victoria had just implemented a a lockdown, one of its Victorian Danistan lockdowns, and um, suddenly, just out of nowhere, and so I landed in Brisbane from Canberra, no connection with Victoria, and I asked the, the cabbie how are things, and he said bloody awful, because uh, Melbourne shutting down has stopped a lot of our business. It's hurting businesses downtown, coffee shops, motels, etc. So it just spreads everywhere. So it's not just your small business or a few small businesses. It's the link, on, it's the link effect that to many small businesses and right to the community, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct, Malcolm. So the suppliers, obviously, to the cafes and, and restaurants. and So, I mean, what you have when you have a shock like that, you have a supply chain impact... And then you also have an impact that comes through the loss of income. And because people who work in that industry or who work in the supply chain, they have less income to spend, and so that affects other industries. Now, what helped us last year was that there was very generous assistance provided. And so even though GDP fell and there was less activity, household incomes remained... uh, They didn't really fall a lot... And so because the income was being replaced by that doubled job seeker, so the coronavirus supplement and also the JobKeeper, which helped immensely. The uh, perpetual lockdown cycle, even the short ones, is this going to affect our country's ability to recover and to recover quickly, Gene? I think so, Malcolm. I think there's just so much uncertainty out there at the moment. And, I mean, each lockdown is costing businesses and draining their reserves. And, I mean, the uncertainty, it's just extraordinary. And you just don't know when it's going to happen. And so that means that people won't run events. They might be, they might think, oh, well, let's delay this expansion. We don't know what the next six months are going to be like. And so now there are economists who are, I mean, I've seen reports of you know, fellow economists who are speculating that we won't snap back like last time because... Well, I mean, we will lose businesses. We're starting to lose them already. We saw that there was a business up at, well, I mean, one example, but, I mean, there are many others. There's the uh, the Wine and Larder Bistro in Ashgrove. It's shut down. It was one lockdown too many. In Sydney, the Golden Century restaurant on Sussex Street, a famous Chinese restaurant, has closed. I mean, the, you can only last so long. And so I don't think we will... We may not see that snap back that v-shaped recovery september quarter is clearly going to be a negative quarter okay we're going to have i don't know two three percent gdp lost it depends on how long everything goes on i mean new south wales is going to stay locked down for for months really to some extent given a thousand over a thousand cases today unless they come up with a new approach but yeah the outlook isn't great what about these terms you just used, one of them, V-shaped? Um, that seems to have the, the sniff of the stuff that comes out of the south end of a northbound bull. You know, I'm not <laughs> accusing you of doing that, but there are so many labels and so many slogans that are piped around the joint, and they seem to be more political spin uh, rather than re- economic reality. They just want to give people something to hang on to. I- is there any merit in what I'm saying? Well, to an extent, yes, but the economy did bounce. <laughs> I'm using one of those other slogans, Malcolm, or those back. terms you probably <laughs> didn't come out of the south end of the bull. Uh, it did bounce back very rapidly last time. 
And that was because I think there was so much assistance provided. Like the, that job keeper was just exceptionally generous, possibly overly generous. And so when the economy reopened and businesses were still intact, you didn't have a, a, any – well, you actually had fewer business – well, fewer company insolvencies because there was a moratorium on that and, uh, and there was such generous assistance. So businesses were able to get back and then people started – well, they spend again. They started spending again. Uh, well, in Bunnings, we know that. Uh, so, and then we had generous programs such as home, the homemaker program. Is it? I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember yep. the name. And that's just stimulated the building industry. So, new homes, renovations. So, this I think you could argue that that was a V-shaped recovery, but then we're in a different environment now. It's uh, it's less clear. What's what's hap- what's going to happen, and also there's the level of support from the Commonwealth is not as great. Now I know like one of the big challenges we've got, and I think we're going to we'll probably chat about this later, Malcolm, is that we've got the state governments making these decisions on lockdowns, conscious that the federal government will pay the financial assistance. Well, well, okay, that that's what happened last year, but now I mean the Commonwealth's obviously providing some emergency assistance, but it's nowhere near that level, and so I don't think we're going to see the the level of uh, the, the snapback that we saw last year. Now, as a former Treasury man, uh, I would warn that, I mean, the, that JobKeeper program was exceptionally expensive, at over $100 billion or whatever it was, and, I mean, you just can't keep affording to, to do that forever, okay? So, Well, that's, that's where I wanted to go. Um, I think we're going to have a really exciting conversation uh, coming up in a couple of minutes because of some of the things you've already mentioned that I'd like to, to jump onto. Um, but one right now that I'd like to uh, explore is the short-term cost versus the long-term cost. We'll get into, well, no, before we go there, let's talk about lockdowns themselves. Have you done any, any work on assessing whether they're viable or not? Because my understanding is they're complete rubbish. And even the World Health Organization, which is a, a dishonest, corrupt, incompetent entity, um, has, has now admitted that lockdowns, if used at all, should only be used initially and then only to get control of a virus, which tells me two things. We shouldn't be using these damn things. They're doing enormous damage. And the, the 50 states in America, some are doing lockdowns, some are not doing lockdowns. The ones with lockdowns are not doing as well as the ones without lockdowns. So the, the jury's out on whether they're, they're impacting properly on health. But certainly, from what the World Health Organization says, lockdowns are only used to get control of a virus. So every time some premier in this country declares a lockdown, it tells me that he or she has not got control of the virus. They're not managing it. And I can see no plan overall. So what are the costs? What costs should we be thinking about long term for implementing a lockdown now versus short term for the benefits? You know, this isn't just about the next six months or the past 18 months. This is about... 20, 30 years when we're still paying this bloody debt off. Oh, look, Malcolm, I absolutely uh, agree with you. And earlier this year, I made a submission to the parliamentary inquiry into the extension of Jeanette Young's powers. And I, I quoted that WHO recommendation that, look, it's, it's just for when you, if you're, your public health system's at risk of overrun, you... You only want to use them in emergency situations. And look, there is a con- this concern that maybe we haven't done the planning we need. I mean, I was stunned yesterday when we 
we're temporarily pausing people coming back to Queensland. Queenslanders who are allowed to come back here, or they, you know, we had people at the airport in Melbourne who their stuff's been in, in a truck being moved back to Brisbane, and they're suddenly told, oh, you can't travel back here because it looks like they haven't got enough ho- uh, hotel rooms to house people. Just terrible planning. Well, the, the planning, I would put to you, is non-existent. The mere yeah. fact that every state is on its own, own uh, merry way, the mere fact that they're contradicting themselves across the states and with the federal government, the mere fact that they're contradicting their, themselves in, in within one state over a matter of months, they're reversing decisions, embarrassing themselves, but they get away with it because the media is compliant. And, and so what we've seen is a complete lack of planning, and I'll get onto that more in a minute, but you know, that was one of the things I said to the federal government uh, in the first single-day sitting of Parliament, which was Monday, the 23rd of March, 2020, the virus was threatening. We had these reports of tens of thousands of people dying in, in Italy, Spain, France and China. And I said, I stood up in Parliament and said, look, we're going to give you an open check because it's, it's, a, it's a major threat. Sorry. It's a major uncertainty. We don't know if this is really serious or not. It looks serious. So we've got to err on the side of caution. We're going to give you an open check. Go to it. But... We're going to come looking for the data and we're going to come looking for the plan and then we're going to hold you accountable. I said exactly the same thing in in April and I started holding them accountable in May. We had to do it very carefully because if we did it too aggressively, then the media would slam us as being irresponsible and all the rest of it. And so now we're getting right into them and there's no plan. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've been concerned about. Malcolm, and I mean, we can't keep going on with this lockdown strategy, obviously. It, it's mad. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And in terms of cost-benefit analysis, look, it's very hard to, to model. And I, I, don't, I think this is something that, you know, people are going to be, academics will be researching for decades afterwards. I know Gigi Foster at University of New South Wales, she's done some really good work. And in her view, it, it's the, the cost of this vastly outweighs any benefits but then to work that out you have to make difficult judgments about well what's the value of the avoided deaths or the avoided illness from uh from uh that we that were that were obtained because we did lock down we didn't have the COVID cases now it's challenging because clearly if we do open up right I mean there will be illness there will be death and like at the moment in society, like I think what COVID's revealed is we've got no, just the fear and we've lost any ability to think rationally about it and to to work out what an appropriate way to deal with it is. I mean, like I'm stunned that we're still using lockdowns. Like at, initially I thought, okay, there is a lot of worry about this. I mean, I was personally concerned. I mean, I've suffered from asthma in the past and so, you know, this is something I don't want to get. Um, but... I could see initially why we locked down, but there's no way that this policy of just locking down whenever we've got a few cases uh, and using this as the main sort of tool to control it, there's no way that this could actually be beneficial when you look at the billions of dollars of costs and the, what is it, $350 billion or $400 billion added to the federal debt. And so that's an ongoing interest burden to, to the government. Uh, they have to pay... 20 billion that'll probably end up being 30 or 40 in 
in the next decade. So, so what is the interest, um, even at these ridiculously low interest rates, what's the interest we'd be paying on a trillion dollars of debt now? Because the 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 debt was around about six hundred billion. It'll now be heading for a trillion. So on a trillion dollars, what's the debt? What what's the interest payment that we'd be up for every year? Oh, I had these figures in on the other the other day, Malcolm, when I was doing the modelling. Uh, at the moment, we're paying around. It's a bit under twenty billion, I think. It's getting close to twenty billion dollars, and that's on under one trillion. So. The, the forecasts are in the budget. I think it's going to be about $20 billion or so for the next few years because the AOFM, the Australian Office of Financial Management, has been borrowing at those very low rates and so it's locking in that low borrowing cost because, because it is bor- like it's selling bonds with maturities of, say, five years, ten years, and so you get that benefit for, for several years. And, and so that's a good... So I guess we're, we'll... We're lucky in that way that because we've got those low interest rates, but in the future they may not be low, and then when you'll refinance at higher rates, and this could be, become a real problem. Well, so, just twenty million, twenty billion dollars yeah, a 20, year. Yeah, twenty thousand million. Pay. Yeah, twenty twenty thousand million, twenty billion uh, a year in interest. That's a significant item in the budget, and on our on our country's size budget. So, twenty billion dollars would buy you. Oh, gee, a hell of an irrigation scheme. It would buy you um, – oh, I'm trying to think of something that I can compare it with, Gene, because, but I'm having trouble because the Inland Rail was originally budgeted for $8 billion, but it's now heading for $24 billion. Nothing in this governance in, in this country seems to, it seems to be uh, accurate economically because they, they forecast that the, um, the uh, Snowy 2 will cost $4 billion initially. It's looking like around $14 billion. The NBN was initially forecast at around 16 It's heading for $64 billion. It sounds like all bullshit to me. And so they just pick a number out of the air or Kevin Rudd does it with uh, Stephen Conroy on the back of an envelope in a, in a plane flight. So, but that's a hell of a lot of money, $20 billion. That can buy us enormous infrastructure and set us up for productive capacity in the future. Oh, it is. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, uh, and one of the problems, I think, is that you know, a large share of that does end up going overseas because a large proportion of our debt is owned by foreigners. I mean, it's not... We haven't borrowed in foreign currencies, luckily, but, uh, I mean, we're able to borrow in Australian dollars, but those bonds are owned by foreigners and so the interest payments go to foreigners. So it's not as if... Like, one of the arguments about debt is, oh, you don't have to worry about it because we owe it to ourselves, but that's not quite the case with our debt. Um, I'll have to provide the the exact figure for the interest payments for, for you, Malcolm, to put in the show notes, but it, it's sort of of that order of magnitude. Yeah. I probably haven't got the exact figure right, but, I mean, that's roughly it because you're talking about getting up to nearly a trillion dollars and so average interest rates, say, to, if you've got an average interest rate of 2% on $1 trillion, so $1,000 billion, then that's going to be uh, $20 billion. And And what I'm trying to... To, to um, understand and help our listeners to understand, it's not just a matter of uh, health. Health is important. So the yeah, way yeah. I look at things, there, there are three factors in this um, management. There's health, which has got to be number one. There's also freedoms, which are being destroyed. And there's also governance. Now, so far, we've seen no plan from the government, no comprehensive plan at all. And I'll talk more about that in a minute and ask you for your thoughts on it. 
But all we've seen is a blind writing of blank checks. Just send it out there. Spend money. Someone's got to pay for that. It's costing $20 billion uh, a year. But more, more significantly, or as significantly, it's the people who aren't born yet who are going to pay that bloody debt back. We're, we're doing this to our future generations with not, no benefit from our health, for health today. Well, yeah, 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 that, that's right, Malcolm. I mean, we'll end up, I mean, I'll, we may still, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully still be in the workforce in uh, 20 years' time or even longer, and you may well be too. And, and so uh, we're going to be paying for it, right? I mean, the debt's there, it has to be serviced. Uh, so this is something that affects us as well as future generations. So uh, I agree with you there. In terms of the costs of lockdowns, I mean, I guess we should mention, and this is the type of thing that Gigi Foster has tried to model in her analysis, and, and she's got a book coming out later this year with Paul Friders on pandemic policy, which will be very good, I think. And, and, and you have to take into account the mental health cost. I mean, some of the reports from Victoria are just extraordinary. I mean, they're shutting down playgrounds, right? And so, it's crazy. Like, how are you supposed to look after your children? And, you know, so it's maybe if you've got a nice house and you've got a big backyard, that's okay. But what if you're in, I don't know, a, a little flat in Richmond or something? I, I don't know. I mean, and you rely upon the playground for the recreation. So your kids don't go, you know, get really agitated. And, oh, it's just awful. Well, you're locking is kids it, out of the sun. Vitamin D yeah. is, is supposed to be helpful for building immune systems. But let, let's come back to the data. I, sa- I said that when we waived the government's open check through last uh, March uh, 2020, that we said we'll come looking for the data, the plan, and we'll hold you accountable. They've given us no data apart from meaningless uh, stuff that appears to be data, but it's not. They gave us initially the... Uh, the sine wave that said cases will rise and then we'll have a savage lockdown and the cases will fall. What they didn't show us was what the, the, that modelling came from the Doherty Institute, which was based upon Imperial College of London modelling, which is known to be bogus. But okay, let's just assume that the Doherty Institute's got it right. What they didn't show us was what New Zealand had the courage to show their people on 25th of March 2020. That was that it went up and then it came down with lockdowns. And then because the virus is still there, it went up again. And then it came down again, up again, down again, up again, down again, up again, down again. So what we're seeing now is actually what New Zealand was given by the Doherty Institute. We were only shown the first curve and not the rest of the curves. Now, that to me is a lie. So anyway, that, that, that putting it, that out there, give you some context. But in addition, in Senate estimates in uh, March, I asked a question and I got the answer back. In, um, in May, just a few, a few months, a couple of months later, I said, I want you to characterise the virus for me. I want you to tell me about its transmissibility, its contagiousness, and also its severity. And I said, I'd like you to do that in terms that we can understand, and also relative to past severe flus and other respiratory di- diseases like SARS and MERS and so on. And they said, no problems. So they came, gave it back to me, Gene. And they said, uh, here it is. And they put it to me on a graph. Now, the transmissibility of it, the high, how contagious it is, is pretty high. But it's less yeah. than some flus. And the severity, they marked themselves on their own graph. This is the chief medical officer and the secretary for the Department of Health. Their own graph says the severity is low to moderate. Not severe. 
it's less severe than it's it's less um, it's it's less has less impact than past some past flus and SARS and a few other things. Certainly less than Spanish flu. So we're not dealing with something out of the ordinary now. I just said, you know, early on we were worried about what was happening overseas, so we had to treat it as out of the ordinary. But very quickly we should have learned from that. Now, this data came out from the government when I asked for it 12 months after the virus arrived, but the public hadn't been shown it. So it's, it's, it's only got low to moderate severity. But there's another thing, and this will be intriguing for you as an economist. We know, without any government stats that it affects some groups of people more than others. Elderly, for example, people with comorbidities, people with compromised immune systems for, for whatever reason, and people who are obese have a much higher uh, severity, much more likely to die from this. But people in the past have died from flus. So what we need to do is to understand who is under threat and then protect them and let the rest of the economy get back to work, which is exactly what Taiwan has done. And Taiwan is not locked down and has had a better performance than we have, despite having a higher threat than we have for a variety of reasons. So it doesn't make sense to lock down everyone because you destroy health, like you just said, locking down kids, locking down people from ex- preventing exercise and fresh air. This is, just doesn't make sense and it doesn't comply with the data. But surely by now we should have the data that says this is what we do with each of the groups who are under various threat levels. Let's get on with our economy. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, look, I'm not a public health expert, Malcolm, and uh, I mean, I, I think it is a serious disease. I, I'm interested in that point you made about how the public health expert said it was sort of low to, was it low to moderate? I'd, yeah, I'll have to look into that. I haven't severity. seen that. Yeah, no, um, it's their graph. What I would say is that what I've been concerned about is we just haven't had a proper public policy process. I mean, like in Queensland here, we've just delegated all this authority to Jeanette Young, and, I mean, she's she's very concerned about COVID, and so uh, she's very willing to impose restrictions uh, if we just have, a you know, a couple of cases. And there's hardly any warning, and it's as if, well, they haven't thought about all of these other costs of their policies and they just don't seem to have any concern about business and what this could mean and the long-term viability of business. I told Steve Austin this a, a few weeks ago during the last lockdown. I said, it's just, I just don't think, that, well, I mean, because I, I wrote a post on my blog and he quoted from that and I was basically saying, well, I just don't think they get it. They just don't understand business. I think there's this view in government and in the public service that, Business people are all wealthy, right? And, that, I mean, that's just nonsense, okay? There are a lot of people in business are just they're trying to make a living and to, to support their families. And so these, these, it comes at a huge cost. But all these decisions are being made by Jeanette Young and, and I guess the Premier's there and she has to tick off at it. But it's at a meet, they have a meeting every day early in the morning and, and where's the process? Where's the analysis from the, the Treasury... What are other ministers saying about it? Where's the, the considered public policy process that we've got used to, that we should expect in Australia? We've just thrown that out. It's just terrible. You've, you've raised the key point, as, as far as I see it. We've been talking about this, but you've said it better than I have in the past. Um, where's the process? We've thrown out the way we used to do treasury analysis, the way we yeah. develop policy. We've thrown that out, and you said a minute ago, a few minutes ago, about insanity. 
Yeah, that's right. Insanity. Now, yeah. uh, let's just talk about your no proper public policy statement because Jeanette Young, to her credit, I'm not going to assess her doing her job, but to her credit, she stood up and she said, I am responsible for people's physical health. End of story. That's it. That means she is not considering to do, to do her job properly. It means she has to put people's physical health ahead of everything else. And I get that. No, no criticism of Jeanette Young on that score. Mm. Who's looking after the economic health, which determines people's future health? Who's looking after mental health? Who's looking after the people who are, are going to die from cancer earlier than they otherwise would have because they didn't go and get treatment now? They couldn't get treatment. Who's going to pay for the health of that, um, that one of the twins that died because they couldn't get access to, to Brisbane Hospital and the mother, instead of having a two-hour trip, had a 16-hour travel ex- travel. Um, odyssey journey to Sydney and lost one of her twins last year. I mean, these are the costs that cannot be put on Jeanette Young. They have to be put on the Premier and the governance of Queensland and the governance federally because the federal government is enabling these capricious lockdowns by subsidising them. And so what we have now is an abdication of economic health which determines our future physical health, our mental health and so many other things just being destroyed because governance has fallen apart. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, I completely agree with you. Now, I thought things were getting bad back in 2008-09, so I was in the Treasury in the Budget Policy Division during the financial crisis. And, I mean, you you may recall all of the reports about just how quickly things were, policies were being developed and we had this, there was this Special Priorities and Budget Committee subcommittee or cabinet which was making decisions very quickly and there wasn't the sort of normal cabinet process. There used to be a thing called the 10-day rule where, if I remember correctly, in the Commonwealth where you had to have a cabinet submission for an important decision out for 10 days, unless it was something like national security or it needed to be made very quickly. And that allowed the proper assessment of policy. And then during the financial crisis, things were happening very rapidly and so they're having that, that subcommittee meeting every few days and it felt like a you know things were, were very like decisions were occurring like that very quickly the, there wasn't enough consideration the analysis was being done uh, in a rush but then even that process which concerned well certainly me at the time and I think some others even that process was better than what we've got now okay <laughs> because at least you know, Kevin Rudd wanted. I mean, he he did want to see the work. He wanted to see the analysis. I think he was a very demanding person in terms of. You know, he wanted it probably more quickly than it probably should have been produced in. But at least there was a process. I'm I'm not sure what they're doing now. I mean, is it is there any written advice? I mean, I I'd like to see it. What? But it, it seems it's just. Well, how does Jeanette Young like? How worried is she today? And then what does she tell the Premier? I don't know if any of this is in writing. I'd love to see it. Great point. Uh, and I'd, I'd raise another point to, to you uh, along the lines of uh, governance again. Um, one, one of the things that became very clear about uh, 18 months ago when COVID first arrived was that we were in no shape after years of sloppy atrocious, shoddy governance. We were in no shape as a country. We're dependent on foreign countries, whereas Australia once used to stand alone in so many things. We don't make our own 
tool-making equipment anymore, which is fundamental to an industrialised society. We don't make cars anymore. We couldn't make ventilators. We couldn't make masks. I mean, this is just ridiculous. So our productive capacity was exposed for what it is. It's been smashed by decades now of poor governance. What we then saw, and we prompted a lot of this by highlighting it, and even the Prime Minister came out and said, we need to restore our productive capacity, our economic sovereignty, but nothing's happened about it. But in the last 18 months, exactly what you've said applies at not only state level but at federal level. The governance processes are completely shot. There's nothing there. It's just making policies based on headlines. So what I'd put to you is that the governance of the last 30 years or so has been destroyed and then now we've had 18 months of just completely shoddy governance. It's a lack of governance, no accountability. And what I put put to you is that it's not just revealed that, but it's revealing that parliaments, state and federal, are not holding governments accountable. So it's really parliaments that are failing. Yes, yeah, completely agree with you uh, on that. And, I mean, in some cases the parliaments haven't been able to sit, have they? So, no. Uh, what can they do? Uh, yes, uh, yeah, it, it's a huge concern, Malcolm. Uh, look, I mean, overall, we've well to date. I mean, now we're a laughing stock internationally, but it looked like we had succeeded, and so I think there was a lot of public support for what the governments were doing. But I think increasingly now, uh, yeah, you have to question it uh, because I mean, you look at what like people in the states are horrified. <laughs> the, the policies that we're implementing, they just can't believe it. No, and, and uh, as I said, Taiwan had a policy, had, had a, has a, a strategy whereby they had, after about 12 months, they had seven deaths and we had over 900. Similar population, 24 million, uh, much more highly concentrated population, so much easier for the virus to spread. Um, but, the, uh, but the deaths were almost non-existent, seven out of 24 million people, we had over 900. And after that, they had a substantial uh, break in quarantine, uh, but they quickly recovered, which shows that they've got control of it. So their deaths are still lower than ours, despite that significant breach. Now, the other thing about Taiwan that shines like a beacon for the whole world to see is that they did that without any lockdown. Their businesses continued running and they, their businesses did well, I think they had a 0.6 of a GDP, uh, negative GDP, but that's despite their key customers in America and the key, North America and the key customers in Europe being shot to bits with lockdowns. I mean, that's a phenomenal response. That's a great response without any virus, but to have it to do it with a virus is outstanding. And, and they did it by putting health first and the economy up there as well because they know future health depends upon the economy. So here are we running around parading ourselves as the best in the, in the world when we're far from the best in the world, and now we've destroyed our economy doing it. It just doesn't make sense to me, Gene. Uh, increasingly, it doesn't make sense to me, Malcolm. I mean, look, I mean, look we're, going to, we're doing a lot of economic damage. Uh, I mean, we will recover eventually. It, it may take, you know, it'll, it's going to take longer than I expected before. And look, and there's the hardship and the like, uh, just the... Like you're destroying businesses, you're potentially destroying families, all the mental hardship. We know alcohol consumption's been boosted during lockdown. Well, certainly my personal consumption at times has. I could speak to that. And you look at the data from in terms of alcohol liquor sales, it, it really has increased. And so there are going to be consequences from that, right, from alcohol abuse, substance abuse. Yeah. 
And that's but what you've got to take into account when you do the full cost-benefit analysis. You're a practical economist and, and you know that it's not more than just about dollars and cents. It's what impacts dollars and cents and what impact dollars and cents have. We've got troops on the street now, supposed to be there for our safety and our security. Yet real security comes from having a breadwinner in the house that has a job. Real security comes from having um, a, a roof over our heads. The family has a roof over its head. Real security comes from having uh, family members around us so that they can support us and keep us secure emotionally, physically, spiritually, and socially. And then the real security comes from having a live, thriving community around us, whether it be at work or social activities, whatever it is, a kid's school, so that we can have that interaction in the community. Humans are sociable animals. We're social animals. And we thrive on connection with others. Some people like it by themselves. That's fine. We, we accept that. But everyone else thrives on connections. Economies are not possible without connections. And it's these interconnections that have not just been smashed, but have been suppressed and stifled and, and absolutely stopped. This doesn't make sense for health. It doesn't make sense for the economy. It doesn't make sense for our future. But that is exactly what state premiers and the prime minister are doing. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Malcolm. I mean, I, I, I'm stunned by it all and uh, I never thought we would be shutting interstate borders like this and or that yeah, these lockdowns would occur so frequently and they'd be so quick to impose them. And like I'm I mean, maybe if you if you're lucky enough to to lock down quickly and then you get everyone in home quarantine, maybe you can prevent the outbreak, but then what are we going to do? We're going to stay locked we're going to lock ourselves away from the world forever. Um, Delta's going to get out there eventually in Queensland. We're going to have cases. We can't stay in this uh, zero COVID forever. It's just not feasible and not without you know, compounding all of the economic harm that's been caused so far. No, well, we, we don't go around in a zero flu uh, environment. We, we accept that. And other countries are now admitting it, that... We've got to live with COVID just like we live with the flu. And, and the COVID, um, COVID-19 is just a, yet another coronavirus, just like the common cold is a coronavirus. So it's something that we now know we can live with, but they still keep continuing with these lockdowns because it seems to be the real, the real target is suppressing freedom and locking people up. Or is it, Gene, being seen to be doing something? I'd like to think that they they think they're doing the right thing, Malcolm. I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't like to suggest that they're. I, but what I think is a concern that they are so quick to impose these restrictions. I think there isn't that appreciation of the importance of uh, of civil liberties that that there once was. So that that's a big concern to me. Right. Let's get back to some specifics as well. We've gone to the bigger picture. Let's come back to the, the smaller picture. We're hearing a lot about the tourism sector and how hard it's been hit. Can you give us some insights into the losses tourism sustaining and our economic health? Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the sectors that's most acutely affected and particularly in a place like Cairns in far north Queensland. So, like, there was a an adventure tour operator on Sky the other day and he was saying about 80% of his business is from people from New South Wales and Victoria 
uh, now that we don't have the international people. So when you turn them off, when you're then not allowed to come here, there, there goes your business. We see that – so numbers at Cairns Airport have already started dropping. I think the numbers are sort of half of, half down on where they were before any of this happened, like because they had a lot of international visitors. So, oh, look, there's that's one of the sectors that's most uh, most impacted – in terms of numbers, it's it's hard at this stage. We have to see how long this goes, but we're we're talking about, well, potentially, I don't know. Well, thousands of jobs lost in in possibly in uh, in regional Queensland and tourism, if not more. Uh, one of the quotes I thought was quite descriptive was from the club's New South Wales CEO, and he's talking about hospitality more broadly. But he said if those lockdowns in New South Wales continue for another few months, then there's going to be Armageddon for that sector, right? So, yeah, huge concern. I mean, this government is trying to provide some support, but I'm just not sure if it's going to be enough. Uh, so, I mean, we could see a lot of those businesses. There could be a lot of businesses that will fail. Sure, when everything reopens, new businesses will, will start up, but it'll take a while. So yeah, that's definitely a sector I'm concerned about. It looked like things were were pretty good until the most recent lockdowns because Australians were travelling domestically. Now, because Australians spend more overseas than foreigners spend here, that means you you can have a thriving tourism sector just with domestic residents. But if you're not letting people travel interstate, then that doesn't help, okay? And that's the problem we've got at the moment, particularly in places like Cairns and the Gold Coast. Well, you know, we talked about economists uh, really dealing with people's behaviour at, at its heart. Um, there was a, a program, I think the state government said, uh, imp- introduced it, where they offered a $100 discount or $100 rebate for people who booked a holiday in North Queensland, something like that, okay? Now... I listened to Talkback Radio on the way home that night and people were just saying, why the hell would I leave Melbourne or Sydney or Canberra or any other city in this country and go to Queensland when you could just as easily be locked down the day I arrive and then I'm up for $3,000 in in, in hotel bills? Why would I do that? I'm not going to run the risk to get $100 back by going to Cairns. I'm not going to risk $3,000. No way. So, I mean, people see through this rubbish. Well, to an extent, I mean... I think there was a lot of positivity earlier in the year. I mean, people seem to think that maybe we have got COVID under control and so there were some incentive programs where there's some free flights or or there was discounted flights and and I think that certainly did help and there there were reports of a, a, a very strong recovery in tourism in regional areas. That's all gone now. So from about... The Easter school holidays through to, the, I think, well, the June school holidays, uh, I think they may have been affected to an extent by a lockdown in Victoria, but you still had a period of, like, that quarter was still very good by all accounts, but now with the lockdowns, and, yeah, they're in, they're in big trouble again. Um, so, look, to an extent, I, look, I agree with you largely, Malcolm. I would note, however, that earlier in the year when people were more positive and more encouraged by uh, the situation. They thought COVID was under control. They were more willing to travel. And look, people 
people want to get it. They want to travel, and uh, there are a lot of people who are frustrated that they, they're not allowed to leave Australia, um, and they've been locked down. I mean, two over two hundred days in lockdown in Melbourne, so people there that they'll want to get out whenever they can. And a curfew. I mean, there's no rational oh, basis yeah. for a curfew. But let's get to something that I that I've I've been told. Um, you have some pretty strong comments on because there's been a call from the state for the federal government to bring back JobKeeper. So I'm going to ask you what your thoughts are on this because I, I understand that uh, you don't agree that the states can make lockdown decisions without having to pay for them themselves. Am I assessing that right and, and am I reading into that that what you've got to have is accountability? So if someone makes the decisions, they've got to wear the costs of it. They've got to take responsibility for what's going to happen. Malcolm, I think this is a, this is a challenging one uh, to, to answer. I would rather not have the lockdowns. I'd just rather the states provide the public health advice and say, this is what we recommend. I think the lockdowns are a terrible policy instrument. Um, but if they're going to do it, then like the businesses need support, okay? so uh, But I, I think the way we've... Because of this split in responsibilities, the states are handling the health response and the Commonwealth has to pick up the bill. I, I don't think that's right. I mean, ideally we'd have these decisions being made by a government which had to take into account the economic consequences and would have to pay the compensation at the same time as making the public health decision. So, um, look, I, I think businesses would be better off if... And, you know, it may be desirable to have something like JobKeeper if the state governments are going to do this. I'd rather not have the lockdowns and then I'd rather not have JobKeeper. The, the, the problem is that you've got this split in responsibilities and the states just think they can get the federal government to pay for it. That's a big problem. So as a state premier, I could be saying, oh, look, I'm going to lock you down, keep you all safe, and the prime minister's going to pay for it. Actually, the yeah, taxpayers look, are going to pay for it. I think... I mean, I guess the Prime Minister has started to reassert his authority over the last few days, but it's been a long time coming. I think he's, uh, yeah, there's been a a bit of a failure of national leadership here, unfortunately. Without a doubt, I'd say national and state government is the culprit and the lack of accountability in parliaments and them not doing Mm. their job. Um, Because ultimately it comes back to the parliaments, doesn't it? I mean, the Prime Minister is elected uh, out of the majority in, in, the, uh, in the lower house. They have the governor's responsibility under our constitution. Uh, but the parliament is there to scrutinise the government and to hold them accountable. And that has not happened for decades properly. So yeah. let, let's just, you're, you're also very practical and you are a small businessman yourself. What advice can you give small business to help them to stay afloat and negotiate through the unpredictable lockdowns? Well, Malcolm, I'd like to think that, I mean, anyone in small business who's survived would really know what you've got to do and you've just got to manage that cash so closely. And, I mean, if you can delay or defer payments, then then do that. If you can try and get people to pay earlier, do that. I mean, all the obvious things, cut your expenses. I mean, that's not good for the economy overall, but you end up having to having to do it. Just look at just look at where the money's going. I mean, one thing I do is I, I keep a, a daily, I, I forecast my daily outgoings and incoming, uh, you know, the cash balance over the next few months. So I keep track of that every day. What do I expect's coming in? What do I have to pay? Incidentally, that's what the Australian government does. We did that in the Treasury or the Australian Office of Financial Management did it for the whole Australian government. We did that, I think it was for about two years out. So you'd sit because you, we had to make sure that there was enough money 
in our account at the Reserve Bank every day. Uh, so, yeah, I try and do that. You've just got to manage that money so closely. Try and tap into whatever assistance you can get from the state and federal governments, even though it's probably inadequate at the moment. And get ready to pounce on any opportunity you can. Any relaxation in, uh, in rules and restrictions, just jump on it quickly and make the most of it. Oh, well, it'll come eventually uh, because, uh, uh, who knows? I mean, uh, politically, things could change. I mean, the, I think a lot of people are starting to get fed up with, uh, with all of these restrictions. I know there are still people who are, who are fearful and it looks like some of these, these policies are popular in the polls, but I think there's, there are, there are a gro- there's a growing number of people who really just are very annoyed at and just, really, just see how costly these policies are. Yeah, I'd agree with that. The anger is building. Um, now, we, you've given us good advice and comments on the, the, um, the, uh, the small, on small businesses themselves. You've also talked about the bigger picture and governance and um, economic carnage. You've talked to, to us about the lack of responsibility and the need for that accountability to come back into Parliament. So you've covered all the as, as economic aspects we could hope for. I'll just ask you a question as a human. Uh, as a citizen, censorship, and marry that into, because we're seeing it now, it's not only direct censorship, I was threatened by the TGA, for example, for talking about ivermectin publicly, I was accused of of advertising, I mean, this is rubbish, I'm just representing what my constituents are talking about and what they want to hear, and, and what they want to tell me, and tell each other, so I told them very clearly, in no uncertain terms, to bugger off, because that is not their duty to shut down a, a, an elected um, member of parliament but we're having that kind of censorship we're having people having sp- breaking the society up into vaxxers versus anti-vaxxers i mean that's that's complete rubbish um people don't people are hesitant about vaccines because the government has undermined confidence in the vaccines and contradicted itself so many times so but that's one way of, of so if you talk against the the virus for some way of vi- virus management then you're labeled an anti-vaxxer or whatever it is so so we've got this censorship, an implicit censorship. We've got uh, Facebook and YouTube shutting down anybody who mentions ivermectin. Um, what impact does censorship have on the people and on economic confidence? Because my understanding is it would destroy trust in the government. Because if, if I think you're strong, um, if, 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 I, if I know you're confident, then I think you're strong. But if you have to shut me down, then I don't think you're very strong at all. What, what's the impact on the economy of that, this censorship that's going on? Honestly, Malcolm, I haven't thought about the uh, the economic impact. I mean, I think we're talking about uh, issues re- that relate to politics and our trust in government and our trust in uh, in experts. And look, th- those are big questions, and I'm I'm not really in a position to to answer those. Uh, I mean, I'd like to trust the experts. I'd like to to trust the scientific ad- advice that's coming. Or the scientific evidence and the analysis. Uh, I know that, but I mean, we do have to be skeptical. I mean, science. One of the great things about science is that it does have that inquisitive or that skeptical uh, approach, and so we should be skeptical of things. Uh, we should demand to see the evidence and, and understand why particular things are being recommended. I'm not going to make any comments on any particular. Medicines, I, I I really don't know. I'm not a doctor. I know. Okay? I wouldn't so expect you to. I'm not the I'm not the right person yeah, to I ask ex- that. I wouldn't expect you to. 
I mean, it's a good question, Malcolm. I honestly haven't thought about it. What's the economic cost? I mean, clearly, I mean, we're talking how it could impact, of course, is through politics. I mean, if it destabilises our society, then that could certainly have economic consequences. There's no doubt about that, but I haven't really thought about it, to be honest. There's a saying I heard the other day, the truth doesn't mind being challenged. Yeah. Because when you challenge the truth and it withstands your challenge, then we can have much more confidence in what is being told to us as truth. Yes. In fact, the truth, and anyone speaking the truth, enjoys being challenged because it confirms their position. Lies dislike being questioned, though. And so what I, what I was thinking is that economics and economic performance of a country and a company depends enormously on confidence. In turn, confidence mm. depends on trust. Yeah. And in turn, trust depends upon free and open debate. And that way you can build truth and trust. And, and so I'm just very concerned that we are losing, rightly so, confidence in our bureaucrats, in our politicians, state and federal, in our so-called scientists and our medical officials. And that will not be good for the country in the future because you have to have trust in, in, and confidence in government before you're going to obey it and before you're going to have, have any confidence in making investment decisions and employing other people. Potentially. I mean, I hope we're, we're not at that point yet, Malcolm. I mean, I know that, I mean, I've disagreed with a lot of the decisions, particularly over the last year or so, and I, I wouldn't like to give up at this time. I, I mean, I think historically Australia has been well run, less well run in the last decade, of course, but we are still an advanced economy. We are still, well, I mean, we we like to think of ourselves as a free society, but unfortunately we're having all these restrictions now. But I think, I'd like to think we're not at the point of no return or that, you know, we have to worry about that yet. But look, I understand that it is something we should be uh, thinking about and, and discussing as you, you know, you're, you're, you're doing it. I mean, you're, you're making these points in the parliament and, in your public statements. So I think that's a, that's a good thing. We should have that debate and that discussion. I'm, I'm probably not as pessimistic as you are, though, on, oh, on it, though. I'm not pessimistic. I'm very, very positive about humans, but I think we've got to learn okay, the good. lesson and, and switch gears quite a bit and start mm. putting more pressure on Parliament to, to do its job. Yeah. I want to thank you, Gene, very much for being with us today. Uh, you've shown not only the economist side but the human side uh, and your respect for people and for small business and the big picture. And, and you've been forthright in making some of your comments, and that's much appreciated. Truth's very important. So big business may well be declaring profits at the moment, yet the same can't be said for small business. Small business is at the heart of the Australian economy, and when it dies, so does our economy and our communities. There is much economic pain that has not been captured in the data yet. Small business needs real support that makes a difference. At this point, the most useful contribution that any government can make is to stop these lockdowns and allow Australians to go out and earn a living. I'm very, very positive about what Australians can do. We can continue being the best in the world, providing we hold our parliaments accountable. Thank you for joining me, Senator Malcolm Roberts, on Our Nation Today. Today.